0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: All right. Let me tell you about what I've got in this glass. To begin with, there's hydrogen in it, and hydrogen is far and away the most abundant element in the universe. And then there's oxygen. Oxygen lets us all breathe easier. And I've got them combined in a two to one numeric ratio. So I'm just going to take a little bit of it here. OK, water. It's uh an essential ingredient for life as we know it. Now, if I were to lower the temperature, what's in this glass to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 Celsius, you would get uh, solid H2O. That frozen lattice of hydrogen and oxygen atoms, it's also essential to life, and it's disappearing. I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, from the Arctic to the Antarctic, global ice is disappearing. The ice is a long-term storage for water that would otherwise flow into oceans, but it also plays other vital roles, as a cooling system for Earth, as a time capsule for ancient microbes, and as a barrier preventing the release of greenhouse gases such as methane. Ice is more than nice. It is exquisitely intertwined with life on Earth. So what happens when the rise in atmospheric CO2 threatens frozen H2O? This episode is On Thin Ice.
0: Ice is many things It's a coolant for a summertime drink A surface for practicing axles on skates It's also beautiful Snow and ice can turn trees and fields into sparkling art And an ice crystal close up? Well, it's a symmetrical wonder of ethereal intricacy and beauty.
1: Ocean physicist Peter Wadhams has long been enamored with the beauty of ice in all its wondrous forms. The Cambridge University scientist has spent nearly a half century literally on ice, traveling there by foot, plane, ship, and submarine. He is a world authority on Arctic sea ice. So to get to the
0: Arctic Circle, remember this. It's 66 degrees north. If you go still farther north, you'll notice that there are days in winter when the sun doesn't rise and days in summer when it doesn't set. And the same is true in the Antarctic. The Antarctic Circle is also at 66 degrees latitude
1: south. Sea ice and its snowy blanket create the Arctic's signature white hat. Sea ice is frozen water floating on the sea, and a large portion of it melts in the summer as part of an annual cycle. There is sea ice in the Antarctic, too, but... More Arctic ice remains through the summer months, when even after shrinking to its minimum extent, it never disappears completely. And sea ice does us a favor by reflecting sunlight and cooling the planet. But that cycle is changing.
0: Global maps of the Arctic in summer may soon look quite different, says Dr. Wadhams. A Farewell to Ice is the title of Dr. Wadhams' book about the importance of Arctic sea ice and the implications of its disappearance Peter, I can picture glaciers and icebergs because I've seen them in photos and movies, but how is sea ice different? Well, uh, sea ice comes from the freezing of seawater.
2: So, in fact, there's vastly more sea ice in the world than there are icebergs, even though the sea ice is much thinner, uh, maybe only gets to be three meters thick after several years of growth, while an iceberg might be 300. But it covers the whole of the ocean, the whole of the Arctic Ocean and a large part of the Antarctic Ocean. So there's much more of it, or at least there was. Uh, But now it's shrunk back from filling the Arctic Ocean and it now is only filling about half the Arctic Ocean. So we now have real open water in the summer which is, in a way, psychologically, it's separating North America from Asia in a way that we weren't separated before. And the area is shrinking very fast in summer, and we expect that it might shrink to zero within less than five years. A very short time we'll be seeing a period of ice-free Arctic just for a month or two in the summer.
0: I I can imagine that from the standpoint of, I don't know, maybe polar bears, this uh, decrease in the amount of sea ice is a serious matter. But on the positive side, I mean, some people would point out, look, if you're shipping something from China to Europe, uh, this would allow you to, you know, have a Northwest Passage. That's a good thing.
2: Uh, Yes, there's a couple of advantages. One is Arctic shipping. You ultimately will be able to sail straight across the Arctic Ocean so you can get from the Far East to the West Coast of North America or to Europe very much more rapidly than you can now. Uh, But the advantages, the economic advantages of that are, are far more than offset by the economic costs of the climate change impact that the retreat has. I mean, it it will speed up the warming of the whole planet because it's replacing a white surface by a dark surface. That's the open water, which means that much more radiation is absorbed in the summer and the planet warms up more quickly. It also, because the planet's warming up more quickly, especially in the Arctic, the Greenland ice sheet is melting more rapidly, and the Greenland ice sheet is the biggest contributor to sea level rise. So we'll find sea level rise accelerating as well, and then, of course, there's this effect. As the ice retreats, the open water that remains warms up, and that melts the permafrost along the the coastal regions and gives you um, an extra methane release which will speed up global warming again. So the, the sea ice retreat, which people think of as just a kind of response to global warming, actually itself causes more global warming and other effects
0: like sea level rise. So it is a pretty dire thing to be happening what you've described there is, you know, just a positive feedback system. So, uh, you melt some ice, you reduce the amount of reflected sunlight, and that causes more ice to melt and so forth. Does this process just run away at some point with all the ice at the poles turning to liquid water? Well, it almost does, yes. I mean, A real runaway
2: climate change would be something like happened on Venus and and turned Venus into a dead planet because all the water evaporated. But this is a sort of semi-runaway in that already we're finding that the retreat of sea ice plus the retreat of the snow line in the northern hemisphere that's moving backwards as well that's equivalent to adding 50 percent to the amount of carbon dioxide that we're releasing into the atmosphere so the direct warming of the planet caused by burning fossil fuels and so on, where every two molecules of carbon dioxide that we stick into the atmosphere to cause global warming, we're getting another one free, another extra 50% of global warming free, which is the feedback effects of the sea
0: ice retreat that's caused by the direct global warming. Uh, Just on a personal note, you've been studying Arctic sea ice for quite a while, and you've used submarines many times to do that. Can can you just describe for me what it's like to study the sea ice from a submarine I mean looking up there what do you see? Well it's the best way of doing it
2: because it's very difficult you can measure the area of sea ice easily with satellites because you can see the ice but the thickness you can't measure except by going underneath and then looking up with a submarine so with a submarine you sail underneath you use an echo sounder to look upwards or you, nowadays you use a multi-beam sounder which gives you an, actually a picture of the bottom of the ice and as you cross the arctic that shows you how much ice there is and what the average thickness is what the maximum thickness is all the parameters you want to know about the thickness you get from a submarine so all you have to do is to not feel claustrophobic in a submarine and uh, you can collect data very effectively but it's not really as safe as it looks you're on a submarine you think you're very safe but in fact uh, I think the closest I came to death in 47 years of sea ice research was actually shirt sleeves in a submarine, rather than wrestling with a polar bear or anything like that. (laughs) Sounds like you're not about to
0: become a dive junkie, Peter. Uh, (laughs) I know. I think not. (laughs) Peter, you write that the Paris Accord falls short if we're to preserve the world's cold places, and specifically the, uh, the sea ice we've been talking about. How so? How does it fall short? Well, firstly, there's a very positive thing about the Paris Accord, uh, at least there
2: was until the declaration by Trump, because it was the first time that every country in the world agreed that the biggest enemy we're fighting is climate change, that we actually have to take this very seriously, and that every country should develop plans for reducing its carbon emissions and switching to renewables. and trying to reduce the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to the point where global temperatures won't rise beyond two degrees. So that's the positive thing and the inadequacy I think was that the targets that different countries presented, uh, how much they were going to reduce their emissions, were not adequate to keep the warming within two degrees. But even with the inadequacy I think is because firstly those Reduction targets are not good enough, but there are mechanisms for them to be improved. So it's good that they exist, but it still won't be enough. And in my view, we have to do more than just reduce carbon emissions. We have to find positive ways of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So I would advocate a kind of Manhattan project for finding ways of direct air capture of carbon dioxide. That is, you run air through some machine which takes the carbon dioxide out and puts it somewhere else. And these kind of systems do exist, but at the moment they're much too expensive. But we need to find ways of making that sort of process economically viable, and then that will be, in the end, what will save the world, because it's global change due to carbon dioxide that's the big enemy. If we can get rid of the carbon dioxide, we've got rid of global change. So I'm very strongly in favor of research and development on direct air capture of carbon dioxide. That I think should be the biggest research program that the world is undertaking. It shouldn't be a minor thing, but a major thing.
1: Peter Wadhams is emeritus professor of ocean physics at Cambridge University in the UK, and he is the author of A Farewell to Ice, a report from the Arctic, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. Now he and Seth discussed the Northwest Passage, a sea route connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. The search to find it was one of the truly great maritime challenges.
0: When Columbus first sailed the ocean blue, his goal was to find an alternative route from Europe to the Far East. the riches of china japan the spice islands america however was blocking his way so explorers bound for the east who came later began searching for a water route around it the dream was a northwest passage a short way from europe to the east and so over and over they sent ships and sailors even canoes up canadian rivers to find this passage and over and over the unyielding ice thwarted their efforts The freezing conditions of the Canadian Arctic were frequently lethal, and so the quest for the Northwest Passage spanned 500 years. 500 years. The search for the Northwest Passage was one of the longest-running, deliberate projects ever undertaken by humankind. Roald Amundsen, a Norwegian explorer, successfully sailed the Northwest Passage in 1906, but the unrelenting ice still made it impossible for the passage to be commercially useful even in the summer. But this once forbidding route through the Arctic is changing.
1: A ship just set a new record with its voyage through the Arctic's Northwest Passage. The Finnish MSV Nordica, with a team of scientists and journalists on board, made the more than 6,000-mile northern journey from Vancouver, up around Alaska and across to Greenland in just 24 days. It's the earliest a ship has ever been able to pass through the treacherous pass,
3: where thick ice has blocked many explorers, but the ice is slowly melting away due to
1: global warming. The summer of 2017 brought us even closer to an ice-free Arctic. Roald Amundsen would be stunned. Arctic sea ice is melting sooner each year, and according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, satellite data show that summer Arctic sea ice cover has declined by 30 percent over the last three decades. The fragile Arctic is warming faster than any other region on Earth. The warm temperatures are also thawing what was supposedly permanently frozen ground.
0: Coming up, Norway's fail-safe doomsday seed vault is breached by water from melted permafrost. Also, the thawing of ancient microbes and a crack in an Antarctic ice shelf races to its dramatic conclusion.
1: It's Aunt Thin Ice from Big Picture Science.
0: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X N A S. While the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land, Antarctica is a continent surrounded by water. These polar storehouses of ice are reacting differently to climate change in part because of geographic differences. Now, when we recorded our conversation with Peter Wadhams about Arctic sea ice, we also asked him about ice at the bottom of the Earth.
1: At the time we spoke, scientists were keeping an eye on a crack in the Larsen Sea ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula, which threatened to create an enormous iceberg.
2: Well, it would be probably the world's largest one yet. Um, the largest one ever seen was in the Ross Sea, and that was about 200 kilometers long. But this one would be bigger. It would be a few billions of tons, it will be the largest
0: floating object in the world. Okay, but, you know, it's not that there's a lot of shipping around Antarctica there, so I would ask, so what? I mean, it won't change sea levels, I, I don't think, I I think, I believe that's Archimedes' principle, unless it melts. Would it melt?
2: Well, it will melt, yes, because it drifts into the southern ocean and gradually melts. But that also won't change sea level because the ice shelf was itself afloat before the... Uh, ice broke off, so in itself it doesn't change sea level, but in that it then opens up all of the, the coastline of the Antarctic Peninsula to the open sea, that speeds up the melting of the ice sheets on land, they just flow faster out to sea, so it indirectly increases the rate at which ice is dumped into the ocean, and that increases the rate of global sea level rise.
0: Just a month after we talked with ocean physicist Peter Wadhams, the Larsen Sea ice shelf gave way. The iceberg it created, or or calved, was, as he said, many billions of tons. In fact, it was 1.1 trillion tons, about twice as much water as the U.S. uses in a year. It's hard to get your head around the size.
4: An analogy that's been used a lot is to compare the size of an iceberg to the size of a U.S. state.
1: The Larsen Sea iceberg is close to the size of Delaware. In Europe, it was described as twice the size of Luxembourg. And just as the loss of sea ice will prompt our recoloring of Arctic maps from white to blue, maps of the Antarctic Peninsula will also have to be redrawn. 12% of the Larsen Sea ice shelf is now at sea.
0: Eric Rignot is an Earth System Scientist at the University of California, Irvine. He's also a senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The agency's satellites track the crack in the Larsen Sea ice shelf, the latest rift in the Larsen ice shelf alphabet.
4: In 1995, Larsen A fell apart and did not catch a lot of attention uh, in the public and even among scientists. Larsen B in 2002 made a little bit more noise, and now we're seeing this phenomenon propagate farther south onto bigger ice shelves.
1: The formation of an ice shelf can't be rushed. The Larsen Sea ice shelf is floating, but it is fed by land ice, ice sheets moving slowly over the ground, and it takes a long time for that land ice to creep several hundred kilometers to the grounding line, the point where an ice sheet makes contact with the ocean and achieves buoyancy.
0: As we've heard, the enormous floating Larsen Sea iceberg won't directly add to sea level rise, but the story doesn't end there. Behind the ice shelf, the glaciers that make up the ice sheet are now vulnerable.
4: The ice shelf is acting like a plug on these glaciers that are sending land ice into the ocean. What we're seeing right now is the plug getting eroded and fracturing but the plug is still there.
1: So the iceberg was acting as the front line of this ice shelf, and this ice shelf is on the Antarctic Peninsula. It's like this arm that comes out on the West Antarctic ice sheet. And so this iceberg breaks off, and behind it are these glaciers that now don't have a barrier between them and the ocean. Is that right?
4: That's right. So we don't think that this iceberg has changed the... Stability of this ice shelf yet. But if we take a look at the long term history of this ice shelf, this is the first time that an iceberg breaks off that far back on the ice shelf. It hasn't done that, we're pretty sure, in the past 100 years. And it's part of a long term trend where the ice shelf seems to be protruding into the ocean in the past and now is exhibiting a concave shape at the front and we've seen a similar evolution before for the larsen b ice shelf and the next stage that we saw on larsen b as more bergs detached from that ice shelf is that it reached a point of no return eventually where the whole ice shelf collapsed we estimate that we need to see another calving event like this retreat the ice front by about 20 to 30 kilometers another big calving event like this one and then the ice shelf would probably collapse It's not going to collapse tomorrow. It's not going to collapse next year. We're looking at uh, 10, 20 years down the line.
1: Now, Eric, you work in radar imaging. I believe you use satellites to do that. How are you able to monitor a crack such as the one that developed before um, the iceberg broke off and and, and monitor the peninsula in general? What is the role of radar imaging and satellites in that?
4: So radar imaging was uh, particularly useful in this case because this breakup happen in the dire of uh, Antarctic winter, so there's no sunlight. Traditional imagery using visible wavelengths do not give us any information about the iceberg because it's always dark, and it's not just because we're looking at night. Day and night, it's always dark. The radar is providing its own source of illumination of the surface, so we can look at the iceberg day and night, even on a cloudy day, and we can measure the rate of motion of the ice, we can measure from space the rate at which the crack, the rupture tip, is propagating into the ice and is changing day by day.
1: Eric, what has the mood been like around scientists working on the Antarctic ice shelf over the past couple of years? As they witnessed these dramatic changes to the Antarctic ice shelf, Larsen A and Larsen B already collapsed, Larsen C, <laughs> the future of it is in doubt. Would you be able to describe the mood? Does that apply to scientists? I know that you work with data, but you also have human emotions and anxiety surrounding your work.
4: Well, there is sort of a mixed range of emotion. I think some of my colleagues thought a little bit too much hype was given about this iceberg because these big calving events happen all the time in the Antarctic. I honestly don't think that they're right. Um, this calving event on and Sea was unique. It was a massive calving event in the history of this ice shelf. a profound transformation of what this ice shelf looked like. There's a little bit of um, scientific reticence sometimes to admit that some of the changes that we're witnessing could be as staggering as they are. Obviously, and C. is just part of it. Long history of disintegration of ice shelves in the peninsula. And I think some of us are raising the red flag, saying it's time to shed off our own prudence and talk a little bit more directly about what we're seeing and the larger scale significance of these changes. It shows that the removal of these ice shelves could have dramatic consequences for these glaciers and sea level rise from the Antarctic ice sheet.
1: Eric Renault, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: You're welcome.
0: Eric Renault is an Earth system scientist at the University of California, Irvine, and senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Frozen water—it's characteristic of our coldest regions, but so is permafrost—that is, permanently frozen ground. It's a major component of Earth's surface, and so back north we go.
1: Way up. Up to Way up oh. north to Alaska. North to Alaska. to Alaska. About a quarter of the land in the Alaska, northern hemisphere north. is permafrost, half the continent of Asia and a lot of North America in Canada, Alaska, and Greenland. Until recently, permafrost wasn't of concern to scientists because, as its name suggests, the soil was permanently frozen. That it is now melting is worrisome because locked in the frozen soil is a lot of organic matter, dead plants and animals thousands of years old.
0: As temperatures rise, organic matter is freed from its icy tomb and decays, releasing methane and carbon dioxide into the air, and both are greenhouse gases. Peter Wadhams reminds us why we want this particular ground to stay chilled out. What keeps the permafrost frozen is really the, the air temperature
2: averaged over the whole year, and especially the air temperature, of course, below ground, because that's where the permafrost is. So although the uh, air may warm up above zero in the summer, deep down in the ground it's still below
0: zero and it stays frozen. What is its role? I mean, it has a structural role, it's the, you know, the top layer of the ground there, but does it have any role from the standpoint of life? Uh, well no it it's actually prevents life in a way because it's
2: there it's like a protective cap over the deeper parts of the soil and certainly offshore which is the biggest threat of all it's a protective cap over a very deep layer of sediment that's full of methane that would like to get out and get to, into the atmosphere. So it's really a, a barrier
0: rather than uh, something that, that actually helps life but it does help it indirectly, I mean, doesn't it? In a kind of prophylactic way, because if you say it's a cap on all that methane, I mean, if temperatures are rising, which climate change scientists assure us it is, that could lead to what? A mass melting of the permafrost with what consequence? Oh, very, very serious consequences. Uh, There's two things
2: going on at the moment. All the permafrost on land is very slowly melting because of the air temperatures going up. But it will last for many decades yet, but it it is slowly melting, and as it melts, it releases a kind of gooey mulch, which was the original vegetable matter that was frozen, and that generates methane and carbon dioxide and a lot of other things as well, so it's a slow release of climatically active gases from a very large area about half of Asia but there's a concentrated effect in one particular area which is the shallow waters of the continental shelves off the Siberian coast all the way along the Siberian coast from Bering Strait to the Barents Sea you have permafrost there at sea underwater but that's melting very fast because the water is warming up and so when that melts What's underneath that is methane in the form of methane hydrates, which is a kind of a a methane combined with ice. That gets released, and we're getting more and more methane being released into the atmosphere now from the Arctic offshore regions. You can see great bubble plumes of this coming out in the summer.
0: Well, just to be clear, the methane, uh, you know, it's not that it's a fire hazard so much. It's that it's a greenhouse gas, is it not? Uh, Yes, Uh, well,
2: it's to some extent a fire hazard. If you were sailing through the area in a ship, uh, you'd have to not have any naked lights around when you drive through a methane plume. But mainly it's a greenhouse gas. It's a very powerful greenhouse gas. It's about 23 times as powerful as carbon dioxide per molecule, but it doesn't last as long in the atmosphere. It gets into the atmosphere. It has an immediate, very, very serious effect on climate. But within about 10 years, it gets oxidized into carbon dioxide, in fact, which is less powerful per molecule, but lasts and lasts for hundreds of years.
1: Peter Wadhams is emeritus professor of ocean physics at Cambridge University in the U.K., and he is the author of A Farewell to Ice. So far, he's helped explain the beneficial role ice plays other than as a global water storehouse. It is also Earth's refrigerator in the form of sun reflecting off sea ice and a barrier in the form of ice shelves holding back glaciers or as permafrost inhibiting the release of carbon.
0: But ice also serves as a vault. Later in the show, we'll meet the million-year-old microbes it has entombed and might release. But first, how it helps ensure your future food supply. And for that, we travel to an archipelago in the Arctic Ocean midway between Norway and the North Pole called Svalbard. Or maybe you know it as Spitsbergen. The islands are an icy, rugged wilderness home to polar bears, reindeer, and according to some, the salvation of humanity.
1: The name Doomsday Vault may strike you as melodramatic, but because its frigid chambers hold the world's largest collection of seeds, reflecting 13,000 years of biodiversity to be thawed in the case of a global apocalypse, the name has stuck, much to the chagrin of the stewards of the vault, such as biologist Osmond Osdal.
0: Dr. Osdal says that the first task of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault is to help with smaller regional catastrophes that are ongoing, such as drought or war. But it's notable that this massive, heavily reinforced vault, wedged into the side of a mountain and designed to be impervious even to nuclear war, may be meeting its match in climate change.
1: The year 2016 was the hottest on record, the third year in a row, by the way. And in October of that year, water from melted permafrost seeped into the entranceway of the global seed vault. This was described as a flooding by some media outlets. Norwegian authorities confirmed the breach in May 2017 and said that the seeds were never at risk. But as temperatures rise, the vault must work harder to keep cool.
5: The purpose of the seed vault is to store copies of seeds that are conserved in uh, gene banks all over the world. And of course, we have been doing this the safest way as we could. It's built in permafrost in Spitsbergen on a remote place. It's quite hard to get there, and it's also deep, in the mountain, so it can stand bombs and earthquakes and so on. So it's very safe, and, and the construction is solid, and, and that is the purpose. If gene banks lose their own primary seed collections, they can get back the copies that they have deposited in Svalbard. It's been called the doomsday
0: vault for obvious reasons, but it's the idea that you have to protect the world's genetic diversity, at least in terms of some plants— against, I don't know, nuclear war or that sort of thing? Or is it uh, really protecting it against many more mundane kinds of catastrophes?
5: That's a good question, actually. Uh, And we actually don't like uh, the word uh, doomsday vault because this is an active part of a global system for conservation of genetic resources. We already experienced that one gene bank located outside Aleppo in Syria, and they have already requested some seeds back because their own gene bank was uh, damaged. I understand that there are millions of
0: uh, samples in the seed bank there. Can you give me some idea, what kind of seeds are we talking about? Are these, you know, agricultural seeds? Is it mostly grains? I mean, what w- what is it? It probably isn't, you know, a lot of flowers, but I don't know.
5: This is a facility set up for conservation of genetic resources for food and agriculture. And, and this means that the species we conserve there has some kind of relation to agriculture so we have all those common agricultural crops like grains wheat rice barley and so on vegetables in principle, all crops that could be conserved as seeds. And at the moment, we have seed samples from about 5,000 different species. Let me ask you, if I walked into this vault, what would
0: the seeds look like? I mean, I, I assume they're not just piled up, uh, you know, on shelves, are they? I mean, they're not just,
5: you know, little little plastic buckets or something like that. How are they handled? If you go into the seed vault, you will see a quite ordinary Shelf system in a mountain hall. The gene banks they pack seeds in uh, airtight aluminium pouches, put them into these standard size boxes and. Ship them to Svalbard. At the moment, there is seeds from 73 different gene banks all over the world, and these gene banks have their logos, their flags, their names on, and you you see a diversity of boxes there. I used to say that all conflicts uh, outside are cooled down inside the vault. There are seeds there from Ukraine and Russia side by side, from North Korea, South Korea, United States... It sounds like a very cosmopolitan
0: seed bank, but it's cold inside the seed vault. I mean, what temperature is it in there?
5: The permafrost conditions in Svalbard, in the mountains and in the soils there, is about minus four. And uh, the optimal uh, storage temperature for seeds is about minus 18. And most gene banks. Use minus eighteen and their storages. So the seed vault is uh, frozen uh, down artificially to the same temperature minus eighteen. So I guess my question is, how long will the seeds remain
0: viable? Let's let's assume that everything continues to work. That's the idea. Uh, are, are you talking about, you know, the seeds remain viable for a few years or a few decades, a few centuries? How long from now could I take the seeds in that vault, put them in the ground, and actually you know have them
5: germinate and, and, and uh, produce plants? I used to say that science is too young to answer to that question. One seed was found in the permafrost in Siberia, and it germinated, and uh, it was uh, revealed that this seed was 30,000 years old. So it depends on the species, it depends on the conditions, and very important is the moisture content of this seed when it was frozen. So well-dried peas, for instance, frozen down to uh, minus 18, we expect it to stay alive for more than a thousand years. In the fall of uh, 2016, apparently
0: some of the permafrost around the vault melted and uh, some water made its way into the vault, at least partially into the vault. It was reported in the press as flooding, but I
5: think that that was probably an overstatement. Was this really a threat to the seed vault? No, it's not a threat to the seed vault, but this is of course a concern. So we are about to make some construction improvements to make the tunnel completely watertight so we can uh, say that we really have a watertight, sustainable vault for eternity. Well, finally, Osmond,
0: You know, climate change is very big in the news, and the various threats posed by climate change are uh, well-known, if not always uh, believed, it seems. But this is the kind of threat that I, I don't think many people have ever thought about, the possibility that these seed vaults might be threatened by climate change. But is that really so? I mean, is your seed vault something that could withstand even the most dire predictions of the kind of climate change that might happen in this century
5: of course, uh, climate change is a concern also for us, and uh, scientists are kind of predicting that we will have permafrost in, in the rocks in the mountains in Svalbard for perhaps 100 years more. And uh, if the climate change uh, continues, then the, the permafrost has melted, and that is, of course, a threat for a seed vault. Living on its own, but as long as we have people in Svalbard, as long as we have electricity, as long as we have resources to maintain the seed vault, it's not a threat. But of course, uh, we have to use a little bit more electricity, and and we are a bit more vulnerable if climate change really causes the, the extinction of. Uh, of permafrost in the rocks there. So this is really a big concern, not only for us, uh, but for gene banks all over the world. Osman Asdal, thank you so very much for talking with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to, to talk to your listeners.
1: Osman Asdal is a biologist with the Nordic Genetic Resource Center, which operates the Svalbard Global Sea Vault. He is coordinator for operations and management of the vault in Svalbard, Norway. Up next, what happens to ancient microbes in ice when the ice goes away?
0: It's on thin ice from Big Picture Science.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let
5: me play devil's advocate here.
1: Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
0: The massive ice sheet in Antarctica offers a glimpse of organisms that have been trapped there longer than humans have walked the planet. I'm talking frozen microbes older than Methuselah. We'll get to them. After all, they're not going anywhere yet.
1: For an important stretch of human history, beginning about 10,000 years ago, around when agriculture got started, the Earth's average temperature kept steady fluctuating by about one degree Celsius. Beginning 200 years ago, that changed. From the start of the Industrial Revolution to the end of 2015, the average temperature of the planet has warmed a degree Celsius.
0: The Paris Climate Agreement aims to limit average world temperature rise to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Now, having already increased the average global temperature by one degree since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, well, we've already reached half that limit and island nations that are threatened by rising sea level want the limit to be even lower.
1: A goal of the Paris Agreement, from which the United States has officially withdrawn, is to prevent at least the most severe effects of climate change, such as reaching the yet unknown trigger point where the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets melt.
0: Polar biologist John Priscu has witnessed the changes that have already happened
3: in our coldest regions over the course of his long career. I've worked in polar regions now for 35 years and uh, spent 34 seasons in Antarctica. And I've seen the ice melting, the glaciers receding. I've been working in the Himalaya for three years. And where Mallory once started his as ascent from Tibet going up to Everest, now you have to walk two miles to get to that ice, the Rongbuk Glacier. So yes, we're losing ice. Humans have powerful incentives to keep emissions
0: down and temperatures from rising further. A lot is at stake. However, as a biologist, Dr. Priskew can also share the perspective of some microbes because for them, human activity is only hastening their return to the world of the living. Well, I mean, these microbes really are still alive, but the last time they shimmied freely it could have been millions of years ago. But they're patient. Unlike for humans, time is on their side.
1: For microbes that have been chilling out in Antarctic ice, warming temperatures may liberate them from their icy tombs. This phenomenon is poised to happen wherever old ice has trapped microbes, including pathogenic bacteria and viruses. And so there's speculation that the thawing of permafrost in the Arctic, for example, will release the hardiest of bugs that carried the deadly infections of the 18th and 19th century from the cemeteries where victims were buried.
0: Now, pathogenic bugs uh, are not John Priskew's specialty, but microbes in ice at the pole are, and he's done extensive research on just how hardy and numerous these bugs are.
3: Well, as as far as the abundance of bacteria, we find anywhere from 100 to a million cells per mil of melted ice, and that's a lot. That's approaching what we see in the ocean and lake water. So if we take that number, and we've now drilled a number of places in the Antarctic ice sheet and Greenland... And we extrapolate to the entire ice sheet the amount of bacterial carbon in there. We convert our cell density to carbon. It's like three times the human carbon on our planet. And this was unknown 15 years ago.
0: So there's a lot of living stuff down there. And how can I picture this? Are these microbes there sort of free, like, I don't know, seeds and watermelons, you know? Are they clumped or maybe even inside the cells of some ancient plant life or something?
3: Well, these organisms, they live in, you know, I like to think of it as small houses, but when you freeze water, you can look at your ice cubes in your ice cube tray, you know, if you could kind of look at it closely, you would see that when water freezes, it forms crystals and the crystals all come together in little veins, if you want, you know, between the crystals. And there's a little space in there that can be 10 microns, 100 microns. And that's where all the microorganisms kind of congregate, down in these little veins and and grain boundaries. So they live in this little network down in there. And also when you freeze water, all the nutrients that's in the water go into those veins as well. So in a sense,
0: it's not that they're actually living in the ice. They're kind of living in the cracks in the
3: ice where there's liquid water. Indeed, they're living in the cracks in the ice, the the grain boundaries. And it's just we see the same thing in the deep earth or the deep mines or below the ocean when they're finding microbes kilometers below the surface of the uh, seafloor. They live in little crevasses, little grains and little cracks in the rocks. They don't live per se right in the crystalline rock. Uh, John, what kinds of bacteria and
0: microbes uh, are there? I mean, can you tell if there are species that still exist today or this uh, are these different species? After all, they've been there for a long time and, you know, species change with time. Uh, are there any microbes in there that uh, you couldn't find today?
3: The organisms that we have found so far are, I don't want to say table variety but they're organisms that tend to survive in cold conditions. They can survive transport to the ice through the atmosphere. Uh, when we originally started sampling the Lake Vostok material back in the late 90s, there was a lot of concern about bringing back organisms that we had lost immunity to, and then we could bring back the plague or you know typhoid or cholera, you know these big epidemics. And there are books written about that coming out of the ice. They took over the planet. But... So far, we haven't found any, anything we would label strongly pathogenic.
0: Okay, so these microbes, uh, they're on ice, but they're not necessarily dangerous. Now, you know, climate change is causing uh, these ice sheets to melt, and even if climate change weren't doing that, I mean, glaciers naturally pour their ice, albeit slowly, into the ocean, so these microbes get uh, get free. They're dumped into the water, Right. Uh,
3: You know, they're still alive when that happens, right? Indeed. When we take an organism, and I've done this personally in my lab, that comes from a a half-a-million-year-old piece of ice, I can actually melt that ice and measure their growth rates using various experimental techniques, and they grow. They, They just pop right up and off they go. So if the ice melts and they do drain into the ocean, there's potential for introducing the, uh, that genome back into the surface environment if you want or into you know other ecosystems on our planet okay so uh, you have all these microbes which have been out of circulation for a while
0: hundreds of thousands of years in some cases maybe more and now you're putting these genomes this genetic material back into the ocean Uh, What are the consequences of that? I mean, other than that, they get a second chance to uh, go through
3: life. Well, interesting you pointed that out because we just had a paper in Nature Geosciences where we studied life under the ice sheet that originated from the melting ice sheet. So we've started studying big lakes and rivers. Some of the largest lakes on our planet, actually, are under the Antarctic ice sheet. Lake Vostok is the perfect example of that. These are lakes that are 3,000 feet deep, the size of the Great Lakes. And uh, these organisms, the seed for them is the ice sheet as it melts from the bottom. And what we found, I'll give you this just one example, on the West Antarctic ice sheet, the, the microbes in there that melt out of the ice, these microbes can actually eat methane for a living. They use it for energy, right? They're methane-oxidizing bacteria. And there's methane coming up through the sediments under the ice sheet. While these bacteria are eating that methane, And so as it flows into the ocean, or as the ice sheet melts, you know, it may be reducing, it's kind of a feedback here. We call it a methane biofilter, these microbes. And they eat the methane, so it's not going to go in the atmosphere. So um, that's just an example of what these bugs could do when they get into the liquid water. Some of them probably won't survive at all.
0: All right, so uh, they can come back. They get a second shot at life, even if they're 500,000 years old. You know, that sounds like suspended animation to me, just what we see in the movies all the time. How, how do they do this? How do they manage to, to sleep for half a million
3: years in the ice and then can be woken up? Yeah, these organisms do stay somewhat dormant. I don't That word's a, a catchy word, but they're sleeping for a long time in this icy environment. And what, what they have going for them down there, firstly, it's cold. When I want to store DNA or microbes in my lab, I Put them in a freezer, right? I mean, that's the same with your food. You want to keep microbes down. You slow them down. You put them in your freezer. And a lot of these organisms produce extra cellular material that helps get them through these periods. And then once you get down in the ice, there's not a lot of radiation from the sun. Like at the surface of Mars gets radiated a lot and the surface of your rope and these worlds in in our solar system where we think life may exist but that radiation is a bad thing it really tears up dna and other molecules but in ice it's a nice screen so you put them down in there so there's they're cold and they stay sub-zero and they're protected from radiation that's not a bad place to store your molecules
0: You know, Robert Scott died on the ice in, uh, I guess it was 1912, on his way back from the pole, and and presumably the ice eventually covered him up, and he'll be dumped into the ocean sometime. I, I suppose he's not coming back alive, though.
3: That's an interesting point. Robert Falcon Scott is still in the ice. We know the ice movement, so he's still around, and he'll be popping out. Yep, his whole crew and his tent and everything else should be coming out someday. And I've been contacted by folks down in Texas who, they store bodies frozen, hoping that the families who freeze these deceased people, they hope that there's a in the future some cure and that they can then take them out of this frozen state, treat them, and then they're alive again. So I've been contacted a lot about what's in these bacterial cells that may be useful to revive, I guess, this frozen human tissue. You know, one thing about bacterial cells they're pretty simple in structure you know they have very few membranes they can take freezing and thawing very well a human's a different kind of cell we call it ours, ours a eukaryotic cell a lot of membranes and they can't freeze and thaw very easily if you stick your finger in a freezer and pull it out and thaw, freeze it thaw it, freeze and thaw it's going to turn black and blister and fall off bacteria can handle that they don't have all these membranes John Priskew, thank you so very much for speaking with us Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime.
1: John Priskew is a polar biologist at Montana State University, and it really bends the imagination to think of these ancient microbes being liberated and roaming the earth again.
0: Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, sure, I read about the polar regions, but they were out of sight, out of mind. They didn't have really any effect on me. And yet it turns out that what people are doing here and now affects that ice And the consequences of that are going to affect all of us.
1: Well, thanks to the team that stay cool even when the rest of us break a sweat senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer Molly Bentley.
0: And thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including life in the Antarctic. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called On Thin Ice. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org.
0: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because on an ice sheet, there's no internet connection, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.